Friends, this morning we are so excited to welcome Dr. Angela Sims, president of Colgate Rochester Crozier Divinity School uh, to the Third Church Pulpit. Dr. Sims is the first female president of the Divinity School. That is worth celebrating. And I, as an alum of the school, I am so grateful for the leadership that she is already showing, for the connections that she is making in this community. Uh, she comes to us with a distinguished background. Uh, before coming to Rochester, she served as Vice President of Institutional Advancement and the Robert B. and Kathleen Rogers Professor in Church and Society at St. Paul's School of Theology. She holds her PhD in Christian Social Ethics from Union Seminary in Richmond, her MDiv from Howard University, her AB from Trinity College. She has done extensive research on the connections between faith, race, and violence, specifically looking at the implications of lynching, both historically and its legacy today. And she is an ordained Baptist clergywoman. Um, her official bio is much, much, much longer, um, but we are grateful for the word that you will share with us today and pray God's blessings upon you. Please welcome Dr. Sims. Today's gospel lesson continues um, from the lesson that was begun last week in Matthew chapter 5, and we pick up at verses 21 and read through verse 37. Hear these words. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, 
but carry out the vows you've made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. This, this is the word of the Lord. So first, let me share my thanks with the leaders of this church, to the acting head of staff, Reverend Lynette Spark, and pastor of congregational care, the Reverend Dr. Ernest Krug. I am grateful for their warm invitation and hospitality, not only here at Third Presbyterian today, but we have had at least one conversation prior to today, and so I thank you for extending the gift of welcome to Rochester. I am always thankful for the fellowship of other lay brothers and sisters in the church at large, and it is a blessing and honor to worship here with you this morning. I'm also thankful for my partner and his presence and support, not just this morning, but in all my endeavors and work for what is equitable and just in this world. I greet each of you in the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say that today's readings in both Deuteronomy and in Matthew serve as a lens, particularly on this third Sunday, in the month in which many in this country acknowledge the contributions of persons of African descent to our collective life. It affords us an opportunity to explore concepts of choice that emerge from and are shaped by an encounter with the divine. Today's question, what have you heard, what have we heard, is an invitation to each of us to examine both our personal and communal ability to hear and respond to God in a manner that conveys our commitment to choose life. Will you pray with me? Lord God, giver of life, we often fail to recognize you. Open our eyes to see you today. Open our ears to hear what you are saying to us, that we may draw closer to each other and to you. Amen. So your pastor told you that I, I'm, I am ordained Baptist, and so I'm going to do some discursive movements um, in the sermon that was preached this morning and the sermon that will be shared in just in these next few minutes. I began by drawing your attention to James Weldon Johnson, a graduate of Atlanta University, who penned the words to lift every voice and sing in 1899. Johnson wrote these words with keen insight about the plight of black people in a nation that was both home and alien. Johnson wrote, lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven ring, ring with the harmonies of liberty. Let our rejoicing rise high as the listening skies. Let it resound loud as the rolling sea. Sing a song full of the faith that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. Facing the rising sun of our new day begun, let us march on till victory is won. Now God of our weary years, God of our silent tears, thou who has brought us thus far on our way, thou who has by thy might led us into the light, keep us forever in the path we pray. Sing a song full of the faith, 
that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. Facing the rising sun of our new day begun, let us march on till victory is won. For one who would not have known that these words were penned in 1899 and that it was Johnson's way of characterizing lynching brilliantly and without ambiguity as a form of neo-slavery, one might think that these words were representative of the plight of many, not only in the United States, but across the globe. When Johnson wrote at 27 or 28 years old, what is now referred to as the Black National Anthem, perhaps in response to the 1898 race riot in Wilmington, North Carolina, he conveyed to a people under siege in their own land that lynching contradicted notions of justice. He wrote this song just six years after Ida B. Wells' public response to a friend's 1892 lynching in Memphis, Tennessee. And it is quite possible that Lift Every Voice and Sing was written to remind African Americans and those who stood in solidarity with them during the race riots in Atlanta, Georgia in 1906, in Springfield, Illinois in 1908, in East St. Louis, Illinois in 1917, in Chicago, Illinois in 1919, and in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921, Detroit, Michigan in 1943, to choose life and not to waver in their cause for justice. When we think about the issue that's before us today, when we talk about human rights, not only in the United States, but human rights across the globe, perhaps Johnson asked us to revisit this song not just in February, but perhaps more frequently to understand that light should always break forth through darkness and that we should always hold out for the possibility that hope and life will always be the last word. And Ida B. Wells, whom the late historian John Hope Franklin described as perhaps the first person to recite the horrors of lynching in lurid detail Documented, for instance, in publications such as Southern Horrors, A Red Record, and Mob Rule in New Orleans, this country's proclivity with violence, with racialized violence. And her work is still relevant and instructive for the challenges facing us in this age. A former slaved person turned free person, turned educator, turned journalist, turned entrepreneur, Wells launched an international anti-lynching campaign in the 1980s. She was born in Mississippi in 1862, only a few months before Lincoln signed the January 1, 1863 executive order that we know as the Emancipation Proclamation. The significant role that Ida B. Wells played in US history as a liberation activist should not be underestimated especially as we discern what history and God want us to hear. A little discursive moment. I always like to read church bulletins because it gives me a sense of the people who gather to worship. And so seeing that this is a more light congregation and understanding in conversation with Pastor Lynette that 
you were among the national leaders in recognizing the sacred worth of all human beings and understanding that we cannot have a theology of what it means to be created in God's image if we subject some to not being seen as fully human. And so 154 years since the 13th Amendment was officially adopted into the Constitution on December 18, 1865, 246 years after the first shipload of captive Africans landed at Jamestown, Virginia and were brought as slaves, there are daily accounts in 2020 of persons ensnared in human trafficking and other forms of bondage. This global reality of the commodification of persons should cause us to give serious consideration to the Lord's instructions in Deuteronomy and its contemporary relevance for us as we contemplate cost associated with choosing life. I wish it could really be just as simple as to say yes. I wish it could be just as simple to say that if we choose God, that bad things won't happen to us. But our history suggests otherwise. We have a record of people of faith who endured great atrocities and yet measures of success would not be associated with their journey. And so what we find in Deuteronomy are instructions to a diasporic people as they prepare to enter into and settle into already occupied territory. And according to S. Dean McBride, Jr., Professor Emeritus of Hebrew and Old Testament Interpretation at Union Presbyterian Seminary in Richmond, Virginia, Deuteronomy, according to McBride, and I quote, when understood as mosaic instruction par excellence, is the interpretive key to the Pentateuch, understood as a whole to mediate the abiding revelation of God's will for the ongoing life of the covenant people, close quote. Today's passage in Deuteronomy illustrates that people of faith are called to remember what God has already done, even as we anticipate a future that is always unfolding. While these instructions are a timely reminder to remember that it was God who delivered a people out of bondage, who spoke to them at Horeb, who entered into covenant with them, who strengthened them for a journey in unfamiliar territory, that we need to be careful that this passage can also be perceived as conditional statements premised upon a prescriptive application that may not necessarily reflect an authentic relationship with the divine. When we survey socioeconomic political realities today that are antithetical to our own existence, perhaps the reminder to see I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity, is a clarion reminder that we are called always to consider the consequences of our choices. When we consider our personal and communal theologies of life, Allow me to suggest that evidence of an insurgence of white nationalism can serve as a poignant reminder that in the, in the second decade of the 21st century, black lives, Jewish lives, Muslim lives, 
the lives of non-practitioners of white supremacist religion, trans lives, the lives of persons who question inhumane practices, who question the separation of families at specific points of entry, who question the caging of children, who question travel bans and deportation of DACA recipients. Even now, evidence of an insurgence of white nationalism serves as a daily reminder that too many lives in this country are seen by many as insignificant. Our stances on moral problems on a local, state, regional, and national level do indeed convey to others the manner in which we love God, the manner in which we walk in God's ways, the manner in which we observe God's commandments, decrees, and ordinances. We remember, beloved, and we choose life, not out of a fear of some form of divine retribution or punishment, but rather we choose life because choices are available from which we can decide to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. It is this choice that informs a distinction between the God of the oppressor and the God who sustains persons when life's circumstances, homelessness, joblessness, educational genocide, poor health, crippling poverty, that might lead some to suggest that they are not known by God. But I am so glad that God has commanded us to love the Lord our God, to walk in God's ways, and to observe God's commandments, decrees, and ordinance and most importantly, to hold fast to God so that we do not subconsciously associate personal wealth and health as exclusive indicators of God's blessings. And so I find myself drawn to today's gospel lesson, a lesson that Jesus talks about anger and adultery and divorce and oaths. And his teaching on these particular topics illustrates and emphasizes human motives and intentions. In each of these particular segments of today's passage, we begin with, you have heard that it was said, or it was also said, which tells us that Jesus was very much aware of the teaching that governed communal life around these four particular moral issues. In verses 21 through 26, where Jesus takes up the prohibition of murder, he extends it to include both anger and the speaking of unkind words toward a brother or sister. Jesus shifts responsibility for reconciliation, not to the offender, but to the one has been offended. And let me say, given the history of race relations in this country, coupled with a plethora of socioeconomic disparities that push one too many persons, not to the margins, but beyond margins into metaphorical abysses from which it is almost virtually impossible to climb, that I struggle with this concept of reconciliation, and if it is not also in some manner informed by repentance. Yet even now, I realize that perhaps the essence of Jesus' instructions calls us to think deeply 
about choices that shape our worldview and our ability to live in relationship with others that reflects our profession of faith. When viewed from this perspective, initiating an act of reconciliation is not about the one who offended us, but rather it is an act of grace extended without any expectations of reciprocity. At the same time, when we look at Jesus's extension of the prohibition of adultery that was outlined in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, and Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 18, what we find is Jesus warning us against a tendency to covet that which is not ours. And while a strong desire is not always sinful in nature, nor does it always carry a sexual connotation, a close read of these particular verses, uh, verses 27 through 30, may cause some of us to question a tendency by some who tend to objectify and commodify women. This view is particularly troubling given the difference between first century and current understandings of marriage and gender that continue to result in schisms and discord in many faith traditions. But let me suggest, beloved, that anything that does not recognize and respect the sacred worth of every human being, and in essence, the full humanity of all people, should give us pause. Jesus continues with regulations on divorce in verses 31 and 32 that are informed by Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4 which allows a man to divorce his wife if he finds something objectionable about her. Jesus' teaching assumes a man's right to initiate divorce, but he limits this practice allowing divorce only on the ground of unchastity. What is interesting about this, this teaching, especially when read as a continuation of the lesson on adultery, is that Jesus leaves us to consider what options are extended to a wife in our contemporary era. What option are, are extended to same gender loving couples? And at the same time, though silent on reconciliation, this lesson on divorce also invites us to consider our understanding of marriage as a sacred covenant premised on mutual respect and care. And Jesus concludes his teaching in this section of today's gospel reading by forbidding oath-taking of any sort. We are not to swear at all. Brother Jesus insists that we be honest. In other words, we are encouraged to say what we mean and mean what we say. This is made clear when Jesus says, let your word be yes, yes, or no, no, that those two simple words should suffice. There is no need to elaborate. However, should circumstances arise that prevent us from keeping our word, I do believe that we have a responsibility to convey this so that we do not sever relationships that are built on trust. 
when I think about James Weldon Johnson and the poignancy of his words for this moment in our collective lives, I am reminded as we think about the challenge and the invitation in Deuteronomy to choose life and the lessons on interpersonal interaction in Matthew that we are called every day to think about the manner in which our relationships matter. As we reflect on this invitation to choose life, may we always hear and respond in life-affirming ways, even in difficult and trying moments. When you wrestle with an understanding of political rhetoric to make America great again, and you think about the plight of African Americans in this country, when you think about the plight of Japanese Americans who were interned during World War II, when you think about the plight of First Nations people and the Trail of Tears, remember that to make something great again suggests a dismantling of something that some might think is disruptive and not contributing to the common good. But if we think about the long continuum of history in this country, we must ask ourselves, are we called to make America great again? Or are we called to really be the eyes and ears of those whom Jesus has said, go and make a difference? And so as we continue to be attentive to what God is saying, may we have the strength to hear what individuals may not be able to articulate, to see what might not be readily visible to the human eye, and to be willing to touch persons whom others would prefer to disregard. In all things, always respond in life-affirming ways so that you continue to be a participant in God's always unfolding kingdom. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.